You're listening to The Archive, a collection of sermons and teachings from Pastor Mike and his peers from days past. Stick around for timeless truths that still speak to the issues of our days. Aren't you glad? It's great to have the Petties here all the way from Kansas. Welcome. We're always glad to have you here and we love your daughter and her family and what they mean to our church. Please take your Bible and turn to 1 Kings, the 18th chapter. Victor read a portion of this. Only a handful of people present this morning do not know the name Adolf Hitler. But a name which is much more obscure, but a very important name in the thinking of Adolf Hitler is the name Friedrich Nietzsche, Americanized by calling him Nietzsche, but the Germans call him Nietzsche. What you may not know is that when he published his book, Thus Spake Zarathustra, in 1885, he made a public declaration of what he'd been thinking about for a long time. He said, God is dead. Soon thereafter, he published another book entitled The Antichrist. And in that book, he railed against Christianity. Nietzsche grew up in a pastor's home, and his father grew up in a pastor's home. Listen to what Nietzsche said about Jesus and his followers. He says, his disciples will have to look more saved before I will believe in their Savior. Nietzsche was a man who influenced Hitler. Nietzsche was a man, one would wonder, whose life would have been different if someone who had been an authentic Christian had come into his life and made an impact on his life. It makes me stop and think about my own life. I'm a pastor and I have children in my home. It makes me wonder what kind of impact I will have and legacy I will leave, not only my children, but on my children's children. Will they have the viewpoint that Nietzsche had? Will they have the viewpoint that it's all a joke, it's all a hoax, it's all plastic? What about you? What about your sphere of influence? Are you influencing your sphere in such a way that a potential Nietzsche might be translated into a potential follower of Jesus Christ, a potential Apostle Paul? He had that kind of world-class mind, Nietzsche did, for sure. Why is it that in a period in history when the church has more resources than it's ever had materially, when it is better organized than it's ever been in its history, when it has a better educated clergy than it's ever had, the church in America is making so little impact on our culture. It's suggested by pollsters that over half of those who are adults in America claim to be born-again Christians. Well, where's the difference that we're making in the world? We're supposed to be salt and light and salt and light both penetrate and have the capacity to change their environment, to preserve it and to enlighten it. But we must become people who ask this very penetrating, and it's a painful question to ask, why are we making so little difference right here in El Paso? Why is this church making no more difference than it's making on our community? Why aren't more people coming to follow Jesus Christ than they are through the life of this church? Well, look at verse 21. 
And Elijah asks a question which perhaps gives us insight and may answer the question which I've asked. 1 Kings 18.21, And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate before two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Now, indulge me a few moments as I quote this from other translations. Victor read from the New International Version, which renders this question thusly. How long will you waver between two opinions? The King James Version, which some of you have with you, says, How long will you halt between two opinions? And that's getting closer to the idea. But the Revised Standard Version of the Bible really gives us insight into the true literal meaning of the question which Elijah asked the people of Israel. He said, How long will you go on limping between two opinions? The word translated hesitate or, or waver or halt really means how long will you go on limping? Suggesting that the problem is, as it was in the day of Israel in the church today, is that we have double-mindedness. And the Bible says in the book of James, the first chapter, that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. We have one foot in the world or in Baal's camp and one foot in the camp of God. We want it both ways. You cannot and I cannot. We cannot have it both ways if we're going to make any difference in the world. There's only one way that's going to enable us to make a difference. And that's when we do exactly what Elijah challenged the Israelites to do, and that's to get off the fence. Now, you're aware of the fact that the thing that turns Jesus off more than anything else is fence straddling, aren't you? You may remember in his letter recorded in the book of Revelation, the third chapter, he was writing to the church at Laodicea, and he says, you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. You're lukewarm. I want to spew you out of my mouth. I want to vomit you out of my mouth because you're straddling the fence. This is typical of Jesus' response to lukewarmness, fence straddling. Now, hopefully you know a little bit of the history of this passage of Scripture, the background. Ahab was the king, and Ahab is described in the 16th chapter of 1 Kings as a man who did more evil than any other king in Israel had ever done before. He was a most evil individual. Now, in addition to the fact that he was this kind of man, he was a man who had built up the worship of Baal. And we're going to talk a bit more about Baal as we look into this passage of Scripture. Let's go back to this question again, which Elijah asks. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? What is meant by this phrase, two opinions? Quite frankly, there are only two opinions in the world as far as the way we look at the world. There is the opinion which is reflected in the mindset, as Paul says, on the flesh. And there's the opinion which is the mindset on the Spirit of God. In Acts, in Romans, rather, chapter 8, verse 5, the Bible says, For those who are according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit on the things of the Spirit. The mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. So quite frankly, 
The worldview that you hold has to be one of two worldviews. And when I mean worldview, I don't mean to insult you by thinking some of you may not know, but there might be someone who do not understand that term. It means the way you look at life. It's the grid or the lens through which you evaluate life. One is that which was represented by Ahab and the followers of Baal. It was also represented by Friedrich Nietzsche. Listen to what Nietzsche said. He said that there is to be an ubermensch, which he means superman, or a person who's an overman, literally translated from German. That's what the word ubermensch means. And the idea is that we're to build a superior race. Does that sound familiar? That's where Hitler got his idea. It's a most humanistic approach to life. It puts man right, not merely in the center, but at the pinnacle of everything there is in the universe. This is one view of life. This is the view that was held by those who followed Baal. Ahab held it. The 450 prophets of Baal held it, as I will mention in just a moment. And it's one which is held by everybody who is in a camp other than in the God camp. We want to be God men, right? Just like the puppets saying, we want to be God people. And Elijah was a God man. We're going to see what that impact that had on his life and on the lives of other people as well. He was a man who was God-centered. His theme could have been Psalm 115, verse 3, which says as follows. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Our God is a sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient omnipresent God. He knows everything. He's everywhere simultaneously, and he's all-powerful. And in addition to this, this is wonderful. That in itself could be a bit intimidating, and it should cause us to fear him, but he's the God of all comfort, too. Our God is a compassionate God as well. And this will be stand in stark contrast when we begin to look at Baal and see what kind of God he is. So there are two worldviews which can possibly be held. A man-centered, humanistic worldview and a God-centered worldview that affects people's lives positively. Now, let's go back and begin reading here. I'd like to begin with verse 22. And permit me to comment as I work my way through this passage of Scripture with you today. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now, what we already read is Victor led us through this verses, these verses of Scripture. We already read that not only were there 450 prophets of Baal, but 400 prophets of the Asherah. And these people had assembled themselves there on Mount Carmel. And earlier in this passage of Scripture... Elijah had spoken to King Ahab. Imagine this, this commoner speaking to the king. All we know about Elijah is he's called Elijah the Tishbite. And scholars of the Old Testament don't even know what Tishbite means. They just transliterate it from the Hebrew into English for us. And we have that much information, very scanty information about him. But what we do know is he came and he commanded the king Ahab to do something. Now understand that three and a half years before this... God had spoken through the prophet Elijah and said, there will be a drought on the land and I will ask God to close up the heavens and he will actually do that. Immediately, Elijah was number one on the most wanted list of King Ahab of Israel. But he went into hiding and during that period of time, God provided for him through ravens, came and brought him food. And the brook Cherith provided him water. And all of a sudden he comes out of hiding and he goes straight to the palace of the king. 
Such courage this man demonstrates, such boldness. And he goes into him, and he actually commands the king to do something. And the king obeys. And why? Because he was desperate. Because he knew that his nation was on the brink of extinction due to the drought. And he says, tell all of Israel to assemble on Mount Carmel. And that was no problem. Because any Israelite worth his or her salt knew that if rain came to Israel, it always came from the west. And Mount Carmel was the most prominent point on the coast of Palestine, 1,742 feet above sea level. And when the clouds would roll in, they would dump the first rain right there. So the people wanted to be there as Elijah would ask God to open the heavens and the rain would come. So here were all these people, and that's the setting of this situation. Look at verse 23. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, and I will put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire. He is God. Now hold that description of the true God in your mind. The God who answers by fire, because I'm going to come back to that in a moment. And all the people answered and said, that is a good idea. Now, the reason they said that's a good idea is because Baal was considered the God of the elements, including the sun. He was the God of thunder. Whenever with thunder or lightning, good followers of Baal would say, that was Baal, that was Baal. He was also, consequently, because he controlled the elements, the God of fertility. He was the one that Israel depended upon for their food. And then that eventually and logically translated in, he was the God of sexual fertility and procreation. As part of the worship of Baal, cultic priests of Baal and cultic priestesses of Baal would engage in sexual activity. Now, I want to go back for just a moment and talk a little further about these two opposing worldviews. Remember that the worldview that is represented by Baal is a worldview which is according to the flesh, according to Romans 8, 5. The word translated according to literally means dominated by, dominated by the flesh. When you and I generally think about the flesh, we think about physical sins, right? But we do ourselves a grave injustice. We limit our thinking. Remember what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5. Yes, it includes deeds of immorality and impurity and sensuality, which are physical, in most cases, sexual sin. But there's lots of other kinds of sins which are mentioned, which are deeds of the flesh. For instance, idolatry. And remember that Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, greed is idolatry. Sorcery. It's the word pharmakeia, from which we get our word pharmaceutical. So drugs and their use illicitly were connected to sorcery. Then there were envies, envies and jealousy and outbursts of anger. Ouch. Outbursts of anger? A deed of the flesh? Yes. And on and on the list goes. Factions and dissensions and drunkenness and disputes. All these are characteristics. So when we think about the flesh, we need not limit ourselves in our thinking to deeds of the physical body. It also has to do with attitudes of the heart. Now, let me give you a definition of what the flesh is. This is the best definition I can give you. It's human personality apart from the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. 
That's what the flesh is. It's life lived exclusive of God. That's what the flesh is. And that's the mindset that was characteristic of these followers of Baal. It was Ahab's mindset, and it was these prophets' mindset. So the life that is following the worldview that is man-centered, that's humanistic, is a lifestyle that excludes God. It's not just a wicked kind of drunken, uh, carousing kind of lifestyle that we normally associate with this concept of the flesh. Do you understand that you can take up political causes and cultural causes and social causes that are good and do them in the flesh? I don't mean to shock anybody here today. You can take up religious causes and do those things in the flesh. You can leave God. I can leave God out. I could get up here and preach and leave God out or try to teach the word of God and leave God out of the equation. I could do that, but do you know it would be no different than my doing anything that you would, I would normally consider deeds of the flesh, wicked things. Why? Because we exclude God. Anytime we exclude God, we've resorted to this approach to life that is a man-centered approach to life compared to the God-centered approach, which is expressed in Elijah's response. The reason the people conclude verse 24 by saying this is a good idea is because Baal was also considered the god of fire. So they say, ooh, a good idea. Elijah says, Yahweh, Jehovah is a god of fire. We believe Baal is a god of fire. Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Let's see, let's see what happens. Verse 25. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first for you or many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar, which they made. Now notice this. The word translated leaped is the same word that Elijah uses in his question, How long will you limp between two opinions? They were gimpy. They were limping as they danced. It was something about their dance that had a hitch in it. As they were going, and, and there's a spiritual lesson here. The person who has the mindset on the flesh is a person who is crippled. Think about Ahab a moment. He was crippled. He was crippled morally. As I've already mentioned, he's described as the most wicked king in the history of Israel to that point. Not only was he crippled morally, he was crippled spiritually. Because he, after marrying his wife Jezebel, who was a follower of Baal, he brought Baal worship to Jezreel, the capital. And he had a shrine and an altar built to Baal. He was also crippled emotionally. And this always happens when people are in the flesh. They cannot help but end up where, by the way, Friedrich Nietzsche ended up. I may have said this already. I preached this sermon twice. And I find myself, and you do too, repeating myself in this third sermon. But do you know, four years after he published the book where he said, God is dead, he went insane. And he never recovered his sanity until he died 11 years later in 1900. But this man, Ahab, was unhealthy emotionally. He was crippled emotionally. You know the story. The story is that there was a vineyard by his palace and he had a hankering after that vineyard because of its proximity and its beauty. It was owned by a man named Naboth. 
Naboth had inherited it from his father. Evidently, it was all that he owned. So he thought, because I'm king, I can go and I can persuade this peon to give me his land. I'll swap it. I won't just take it. I have the right as a king to take it from him if I want. But I'm just going to go and I'll sweet talk him into giving it to me. Well, he didn't succeed. Naboth said, there's no way. I'm not even giving it to you, king. And so do you remember what he did? He turned around like a little boy and he went into his room, the Bible tells us, and he pouted. He was vexed and sullen, the Bible tells us. And he crawled up in his bed and he turned his face to the wall and his wife came in. And so many of us men are like this. We want our wives just to pet us when we're down. We want a mother instead of a wife. Right, ladies? All right, so she comes in. She was more wicked than he, Jezebel. And basically she says, what's wrong, King Ahab? And then he told the story. He said, that's easily remedied. All you need to do is get some false witnesses to say that Naboth cursed God and cursed you as king. And then we can stone him and he'll be out of the way and you'll get his property. Guess what he did? He did the very thing his wife suggested. It's a sad story. But it was a result of his emotional crippledness that led to this. And a person who is oriented towards self, oriented toward humanism, is always going to end up there. Just like Nietzsche did, just like Ahab did, and so many other people have ended up. Now, let's look back at our passage of Scripture, verse 27. And it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them. Can I translate that into 2001 language? He trash-talked them. I like it. He trash-talked them. I was watching a playoff game yesterday between the Milwaukee Bucks and the Orlando Magic. And at the halftime, there was this little interchange between Tracy McGrady and actually McGrady was not there. And if you know anything about Tracy McGrady, he's been the most prolific scorer in the NBA playoffs this year. He's averaging over 34 points a game. And the man who's been guarding him is Glenn Robinson, who is one of the premier power forwards in the NBA, his nickname is Big Dog, that is Robinson's. And after McGrady had scored 34 points and held Robinson to an average of 14 points a game, do you know what McGrady said? He said, he's not a big dog, he's a puppy dog. That's trash talking. And it deserves a response. And Glenn Robinson gave a response. Do you know what his response said? He said, we're going to give McGrady and his friends a present at the end of this game that they can take and enjoy on their vacation. In other words, we're going to beat them. Well, McGrady won last night. It remains to be seen who's going to win the series. But he trash-talked Glenn Robinson, big dog, and look what Elijah's doing. It's proper, I would say, to trash-talk. This is the one principle you need to get from this message. It is proper to trash talk the devil. Okay? And it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a God. Either he's occupied, this means he's thinking about something else, so he can't really hear what you're saying, or gone aside, and the word translated gone aside in Hebrew means he stepped into the men's room. The translators are too polite to say that. Or is on a journey, he's off somewhere taking care of business. Or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. 
So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And it came about when midday was passed that they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Do you see the characteristics of the God of humanism, the God Baal? What are the characteristics The God of humanism, the God of Baal, if you're following a self-centered approach to your life, this God is an impotent God. He's an ignorant God. He's an absent God. He's certainly not a caring God. He's an uncompassionate God because as people are trying to worship him, they mutilate themselves. It reminds me of what Jesus says in John's gospel where he says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Is your life being robbed? Is it being Reduced? Is it being destroyed? If it is, it's directly related to the fact that you're not following the one true God. Because the devil is one who robs us of the things which we deserve in Christ. We don't deserve them, we receive them in Christ. In Psalm 115, this is what the psalmist says, and it's so fitting at this point. He says, their idols, speaking of those who follow Baal or any other man-made God, their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. They who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. Isn't that what happened to these followers of Baal? It was a figment of their imagination. They became nothing. They destroyed themselves because they were not in line with the Lord. Now, let me pause here in just a moment. It's conceivable that in a group like this, there are people who are straddling the fence. The Middle Ages theologians had a word for people like this. It's a word in Latin. It's acedia, which means dejection is what it really means. Because the one who has received Christ and is in what the old timers called a black backslidden condition are people who are of all people are most miserable because they have known what it is to follow the Lord. They've known what it is to follow a life in the spirit, a spirit dominated not by the flesh, not by self, but dominated by the spirit of God. And the Spirit of God produces love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. What a contrast of lives. And what we need to understand is that God, by His Spirit, wants to produce these things in our lives. Remember that the mindset on the flesh is death. But a mindset on the Spirit is life. When people come to this place... I would like to be a little fly on their lapel or really look into their heart. People who come here for the first time, do they experience life or death here? Do they experience flesh or do they experience spirit here? I wonder. We are to be people who, like Elijah, as we're going to see, he had a passion for the glory of God. He had a passion for the Word of God. He obeyed the Word of God. He had a passion to be a servant of God. This is a passionate man, this Elijah. He is a bold man. He's a man who expresses incredible calm because the life in the spirit is not only a life that is characterized by a lack of restlessness. And people are restless today, aren't they? 
People are restless. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 20, the wicked are like a tossing sea. It cannot be quiet. Their waters throw up refuse, filth, and mud. Isn't that a picture of people whose lives are walking in the direction that Baal would have them to walk in a humanistic, self-centered approach versus the way that God wants us to live? It was Augustine who so aptly said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee, O Lord. Are you here today and restless? I wonder. I would imagine there's somebody here who's restless. At least one person. Your restlessness is directly related to a refusal on your part to follow the Lord. Because He gives peace. If only you had paid attention to my commands, the Word of God says, your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. So what the Lord wants from us is to get off the fence, obviously. Now, let's go a little further here in our passage, verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. Now, isn't this a neat thing? Here's this group of people. He's already issued a challenge to them, and it's telling. The last line of verse 21, scan over there. But the people did not answer him a word. When I read this challenge... As I was preparing the message, immediately I thought of Joshua's challenge recorded in Joshua 24. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And do you know what the response of Israel was at that point in their history? Yes. In unison, they said yes. But here we have this dumbfounded silence. It's a wait and see mentality. And you hear the plaintive cry of God through the prophet Elijah. How long? How long? How long? That's God's voice to us today. How long, church? How long, people of God, will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, reflected in the person of Jesus Christ, follow him. If Baal is God, go for it. But he calls them near to him. He does not want to leave anything to guesswork. He does not want anyone to accuse him of any kind of trickery here. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. I want you to begin to think back with me to what I asked you to store away for future reference. The God of Elijah is the God who answers by fire. And now we're going to see the steps that are necessary for God to answer by fire. And remember what John the Baptist said about the coming Messiah. He said, I baptize with water, but there's one who's coming after me who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. Fire is a symbol of the Spirit of God. When God spoke to Moses, what kind of bush did he speak through? A fiery bush. When God gave the commandments on Mount Sinai... What created the smoke on Mount Sinai? The fire of God fell on Mount Sinai. When Aaron and Moses went into the tent of meeting, they came out and they put the offering on the altar. What happened? God sent fire and it consumed the entire offering. When Solomon dedicated the temple, recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and the glory of God came down, guess what accompanied the glory of God? Fire. The presence of God. So here we see the first thing that indicates what may be necessary for us to be in a position. We can't force the hand of God. We can't make God send his spirit and all his power upon us. But what we can do, we can put ourselves in the way, in the position to receive the power. Now look what Elijah does. He rebuilds the altar. 
It had gone into disrepair due to disuse. Now, what is an altar if it's not a place of worship? But here's something that would elude us if we were not careful. How many stones did Elijah choose to rebuild the altar? Twelve. Now, what did those twelve stones represent? The twelve tribes of Israel. Those of you who know your Old Testament history. But here you go. What was the state of those twelve tribes at this time in history? They were divided, were they not? Ten tribes in the north, where Elijah and Ahab were. Two tribes in the south, where Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah. So what is God saying? Before the fire can fall, there has to be unity in worship to the Lord. That's exactly what he's saying. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like oil poured down over the head of Aaron, flowing over his beard, onto his garments, Psalm 133 tells us. And oil is another symbol of the Holy Spirit. So before the Spirit of God can come in power, we must do everything within our power to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You, do you understand how important it is for God's people to worship Him in unity if the Spirit of God is going to come? Do you understand just how significant that is? I hope so. Now let's read further in verse 32. So with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the oxen pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water flowed around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. Somebody who's real observant might skeptically ask the question, where did they get the water? I thought there had been a three and a half year drought. Well, remember where Mount Carmel is located. It's on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. Water doesn't have to be free of salt to cause wood not to burn, right? And if that were not enough, we know that there are springs on that mountain, Mount Carmel, that are independent of rainfall. Even if they'd been dried up, though, they could have gone down to the water's edge. And that's a lot of water, 12 barrels of water. Look at verse 36. Then it came about at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant. And that I have done all these things at thy word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that thou, O Lord, art God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Now, do you notice the focus of this man, Elijah? Who is at the center of his attention? God's at the center of his attention. He's praying that God would be honored. He's saying, I'm your servant. I'm your slave. I'm obedient to your word. He's wanting to put himself in that position of submission. And that's exactly what is characteristic of the life according to the Spirit. Remember, it's a life dominated, controlled by, led by the Spirit of God. There are two potential ways that you and I can walk. According to the flesh, according to the Spirit. A life exclusive of God, a life dominated by God. Elijah lived that kind of life. And he had great answer to his prayer. Look at verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell. And consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Not only did he build an altar that spoke of unity and worship, but he put the whole offering on the altar. There's a tendency for us to reserve things from the Lord. 
But if there's going to be any fullness of the Spirit in our individual lives or in our church's life, it all has to be yielded to the Lord. And he prayed this prayer of faith. Isn't this a great prayer of faith? As far as I know, I haven't done much camping, but I never have known stones to be good kindling. Have you? But what are stones used for here? To light a fire. It came down and consumed that. Dust many times is used to put a fire out, but it consumes the dust, licked up the water that was in the trench. And look at verse 39. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. What a wonderful response. Dick Harvey told the story of when he was a senior in college. He went to a secular university. He was a Christian. As far as he knew, he was the only committed Christian on the campus. And he told the story of how, as an upperclassman, he received a knock at his door. He opened the door, and he saw a freshman there. And the freshman said this to him. He said, I'm told that you're a man, maybe the only man here on the campus who believes in prayer. Am I right about that? Are those reports true? And he said, yes, I do believe in prayer. And then he went on to say this. He said, would you begin to pray for me? Every time you pray, even when you say grace over meals, will you begin to pray for me? Because I'm majoring in pre-med, and in order to do that, I have to take chemistry. And you know, because you've taken this class, that Dr. Lee, our chemistry professor, is a, a skeptic and a mocker of God. And as it turned out, for years prior to this, for 15 years at least, the last three lessons before Thanksgiving break, instead of teaching chemistry, Dr. Lee spent the whole time debunking prayer and showing how prayer was ridiculous. Well, the time came for this young man. He sensed that God was going to tell him, if asked the question, he was going to stand up and have the courage to say to the professor, I believe in prayer. Well, the professor, after giving his discourse and railing against prayer, asked the question, is there anybody here, after I've told you what I've told you, who believes in prayer? And remember that all the prayers of your parents, all the prayers of your Sunday school teachers, all your prayer, your pastor's prayer, are not going to keep me from doing what I'm going to do. And this is what he did every year. He took a two-quart glass flask that he used in chemistry experiments, and after... He had challenged anyone to pray that that flask would not break when he dropped it. He would drop it and it would shatter. He said, is there anybody here? Well, this young freshman kid stood up. He said, I believe in prayer. And he giggled. That is, the professor giggled. And he said, well, why don't you pray? And the boy bowed his head and he said to the Lord, God, Father, Lord of the heavens, I pray for your glory and the namesake of your son, Jesus Christ, and the faith that I'm putting in you as your trusted servant, that you will keep the flask from breaking. Dr. Lee took the flask, he dropped it, and the angle of the flask went down and hit his foot, and the flask just rolled off innocently onto the floor. Do you know the whole class laughed at the professor at that point. He who laughs last, laughs best. Guess who's going to get the last laugh? Jesus Christ is going to have the last laugh, isn't he? And never did that man put that challenge forth again because of the faith demonstrated by this young freshman. God wants us to be that kind of people. When we look at the life of Elijah, there are three things that we can see that can really help us in our lives. Listen carefully. 
They're obvious. The first one is one man plus God is a majority. I know that's a cliche, but it's true. How badly outnumbered was Elijah? 850 to 1. One man plus God is more than anything that will ever be needed. Do you know the bigness of our God determines how fruitful our lives are? We have such a small understanding of God. We limit God. But there's nothing too difficult for God. If I understand the Bible, all things are possible. We sang about it today. Everything is possible with this God. There's another thing that comes to the forefront as we look at this episode out of Elijah's life. God uses men and women who are not problem-oriented, but are potential-oriented. And what we tend to do, we feel embarrassed for God, and we're afraid to ask God to do anything very big for fear that he won't be able to do it. Well, isn't that a small way of thinking? But Elijah thought big, didn't he? He he said, let's get this situation ready so there'll be no doubt as to the power of God, the God who answers by fire. And then here's the other thing, and the last thing. God uses people not because of their ability, but because of their availability. In James, the fifth chapter, the Bible speaks about Elijah in this way. The Bible says that Elijah was a man just like us. And when I read that, I say, no way. No way. Maybe he's like everybody else, but he's not like me. I don't have the confidence he had. I don't have the courage he had. I don't have the calmness he had. Well, what was the source of his confidence and his courage and his calmness? He learned the lesson that the Apostle Paul had learned, that I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It was not his ability that made him capable. He was indeed a man just like you and I are human beings. But he was a person who lived his life according to the Spirit, under the domination and control of the Holy Spirit. That's what made the difference in his life. So back to where we began today. Why are we making no bigger an imprint on El Paso? Why are we making... No bigger an impact as a church. Well, the answer to that question is we are wavering between two opinions. We're straddling the fence. You know, God's really worked in my heart. It's one of the benefits of being a pastor. When you prepare to preach, God has a lot, not 35 minutes to work in a person's heart and mind, but a lot of time. God's been speaking to me about my own life. It's wonderful how he's reorienting my life, challenging me, and saying, look, Mike, this area of your life, you're sort of straddling the fence here. You've got to get off of that and get over in one line and walk in the Spirit. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you noticed how often when Jesus encounters people in the Gospels, he says, come, follow me? Not a religion, but a person. Follow Jesus And Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He would never lead us into difficulty. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The Lord's leading us. Don't you want that kind of life? Versus the kind of life that is a Baal follower's life? A secular life? A life that's going to end in difficulty? Let's pray together. Lord God, help us.
Help me especially, Lord, to be a person and to be persons who walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.